Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. It's on page 1192 in the Pew Bible. And any children here aged kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. So we're continuing our study through Hebrews chapter 11. Just a reminder, this coming Thursday is our uh, men's night out. For those of you guys who went on the men's retreat or didn't get to go and wanted to go, we're sort of having a reprise this Thursday night. So make sure after the service you go downstairs and sign up for that. And also the men's canoe trip is coming up Father's Day weekend. So uh, just to be aware of some of those opportunities. Hebrews chapter 11, we're studying through Hebrews 11. And this morning we're going to look at uh, verses 8 to 10 and 13 to 16. Let me read those verses. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become father because he had considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So have you ever actually had the experience of living as a foreigner or an expatriate in another culture? Um, I, I mean, not just going on a vacation someplace for a week, but I mean, you know, a couple months to maybe a year or some extended stint in another place where you really were uh, a stranger in a strange land from your perspective. Uh, have you ever been uh, p- perhaps on a student trip or maybe you were in the military or for a job that took you overseas? It's an interesting experience. I've actually had two cross-cultural experiences like that of actually living in another place. One was when, uh, when I was in high school. I spent two months in Taiwan for a summer. It was kind of a church mission project sort of thing. And, you know, it was a really amazing experience. My other cross-cultural one was several years ago when I moved from America to live in New England. And uh, <laughs> really amazing. But if, if you've lived in another culture, if you've lived in another country, uh, you know there's this sort of strange thing that happens where at one level you fit into the culture. You know, at a certain level you... You eat the food, you adapt yourself to the rhythms of life there. Uh, Perhaps if you're there long enough, maybe you learn the language. And yet at another level, at an internal level, the longer you're there, the more you kind of start becoming aware of the values, beliefs, expectations, assumptions that you had 
that you didn't even realize you had. You just thought, well, this is how the world works. This is how relationships function. And then suddenly you, you start hanging out with all these different people. You're like, wait a minute, you do that completely differently. And so in some ways you become more distant. You become more aware of how different you are and, and what different values and expectations you have. Well, that's kind of what it's like to become a Christian. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you find yourself feeling like a stranger or an alien in the world. Except the funny thing is, you didn't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, you become a Christian and you're like, I'm not at home in this world. And yet you did not even travel into a different country. Rather, it's like another country has traveled into you. And all of a sudden, even though you're still in the same place, living the same way, yet things feel so different and you have such a different value system and you're having a different hope and a different expectation as a Christian. You know, you could live your whole life in the same town. You could be a total townie. And for first, let's say, 40 years you live there, you're just a regular townie. And then perhaps by God's grace you come to faith in Jesus you realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and by faith you call out to Christ. Christ comes into your life. That heavenly country invades your soul. And then you live another 40 years in the same town. So from the outsider's perspective, it's like, well, you're just a local. You live here. And yet you're like, man, those two halves of my life couldn't be more different. That second half, I didn't feel like I belonged, even though I had been there 40 years. I was longing for a heavenly home. And so... This is the common experience of God's people. How do you live in that kind of tension? How do you live as a foreigner in this world, as an alien in this world? And the answer we see from Hebrews 11, of course, is by faith. It is a journey of faith as pilgrims on earth. So today we come in Hebrews 11 to Abraham. Abraham is uh, perhaps the greatest hero of the Old Testament, perhaps the man of faith par excellence, in in the Bible. And I was going to spend two Sundays on Abraham, but uh, I couldn't shortchange him because it's Abraham. So we're going to be in Abraham for three Sundays. Um, and Abraham's going to show us the journey of faith. He's going to show us the journey of faith. And today I just want to look at the call of Abraham because that's a whole story in and of itself. So uh, l- let me read verses 8 to 10 again as we look at the call of Abraham as Abraham began his journey by faith. And we're going to see in Abraham uh, a model of what it means for us as Christians to live by faith in this world. So look at verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Here we have another uh, sort of typical Hebrews 11 summary of an Old Testament story. So I want to do what we've been doing the past couple Sundays. I'd like to go back and look at the original story. So if you'll bookmark Hebrews 11, would you go back to Genesis chapter 12? And we'll look at the first nine verses there, which make up the Abraham call story. 
So here's when Abraham was first called by God to begin his sojourn. The Lord had said to Abram, so before he became Abraham, he was Abram. Then God changes his name later in the story. But anyway, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And he makes the promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham's called out of his home country to go to a foreign land and God gives him this promise. In verses 2 and 3 there of chapter 12, these are some of the most important verses in the Bible. These are verses you just need to know where they are and you need to be familiar with them as a sort of a student of the Bible because this is one of those like major milestones in the unfolding story of God's plan. The call of Abraham is one of those massive turning points where God signals what he's going to do to save this broken, messed up world. And he makes this promise to Abraham. He's going to bless Abraham. He's going to make his name great. Notice what he's going to do, though. He's going to make Abraham into a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And then through him and through that nation, at verse 3, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. So through Israel will come Jesus, and out of Jesus, the gospel will go to all the nations. So in many ways, you have in verses 2 and 3, the Bible's flow in its major sort of Roman numeral points in the outline. Roman numeral 1, Israel. Roman numeral 2, all the nations on earth blessed through Christ who comes from Israel. So the whole kind of flow of of redemptive history is encapsulated in sort of a seminal way in verses 2 and 3. But in order to actualize that promise, what does Abraham have to do? He's got to get up, leave his home country, and travel to the land of Cana. So, verse 4, Abram Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. It's never too late to start the journey of faith. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Cana and they arrived there. Now notice when they get there, they continue to live nomadically. Verse 6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So when he got there, he was an alien. They, They weren't fellow Chaldeans like he was. These were Canaanites. He was an alien there. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went toward, on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So we have this picture of Abram not settling down, not building a fort, not starting a city, not moving in with the Canaanites, but just traveling around, stopping, building an altar, worshiping God, traveling, stopping, building an altar. Okay, now let's go back to Hebrews 11. And let's reread those verses and see how this background really brings these verses to life. Looking at Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith, Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So there's that. God calls him. Abraham gets up and goes. The, The journey of faith begins with the call of God. God starts it by calling us 
to himself to go somewhere. You don't begin the journey of faith just by sort of waking up one day and saying, you know, I'm kind of bored. What should I do today? Yeah, I'll start the journey of faith. I mean, why not? Something else to do. I've got some free time in my hands. It's not how it happens. We're just in our own little worlds doing our own little thing, and God calls us to himself. And we respond by faith, but it's God who initiates the calling. God said to Abraham, get up, leave the land of your fathers. Leave the polytheistic, idol-worshipping land of the Chaldeans, and I want you to go to another land I'm going to show you. Where am I going? Don't worry, you'll know when you get there. I'll tell you. You're traveling. It's like what Jesus did. He would walk along and he would call these disciples. You know, there's Peter and his brothers and his associates fishing there on the shore. And Jesus says, follow me. Where are we going, Jesus? Follow me and you'll find out. But you've got to follow me. Matthew, sitting there as a tax collector. Get up. Follow me. And so following God is, is following the call of God. And if you're a Christian, you can look back in your life and you, you recognize that God called you at some point. Nobody's just born a Christian. You don't become a Christian as a baby. You become a Christian when God calls you to be a Christian. There's, there's some moment in your life. For some people, it is kind of some dramatic, climatic event at, climactic event at age 40 or something like that. Others, maybe it's as a child. You know, in, in your younger years, God calls you. There's different ways it happens. But there's some time and in some way, whether through a dramatic event or a gradual process, that the call of God comes upon our lives. And we recognize as we look back as Christians that, you know, I didn't start this thing. God started this thing. And I've been following the call by faith. Is it possible that perhaps even now God is calling you? Maybe He's been calling you. And you weren't quite sure what it was that you were experiencing like, you know, some weird things are happening. You thought, maybe I'm going through a midlife crisis. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I just need some medication or something. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, I, I'm suddenly thinking about all these deep things, and I never worried about it before. You know, what's happening to me? What if what's happening to you, the reason you're here, the reason you're curious, is because God is calling you, and you don't even recognize it yet? What if God is speaking into your life? Wouldn't that be amazing? The living God who created you, Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead, is supernaturally drawing you to Himself. And so what, do you, what should you do if that's the case? If you find yourself spoken to by God, what should you do? And the answer is, by faith, follow Him and let Him lead you. Whatever direction is He's going to take you, follow Christ. So Abraham followed God. Verse 9. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So the author of Hebrews seizes upon the detail in Genesis that Abraham lived in tents. And he says, look, he was traveling. Even in the promised land, he didn't really camp out permanently. He just kept moving. He had this peripatetic lifestyle, going around place to place, pitching his tent, breaking camp, going to the next place. Why did he do that? Is it because he was just nomadic? He was a, sort of an early Bedouin or something like that? Well, maybe. But the author of Hebrews has a spiritual reason. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying the reason he didn't build a city, the reason he didn't establish Fort Abraham, the reason he didn't you know, lay foundations is he was waiting for God's city. 
So that even in the promised land, Abraham wasn't really in the promised land. In other words, even the promised land of the Old Testament, the land of Cana, itself was a foreshadowing and a prefigurement of our true home that we're waiting for in heaven. Even the promises to the people of Israel about the, the land of Cana, weren't, that wasn't the end of the story. That was simply kind of like a signpost pointing forward to the true Cana, the true land of Israel, which is heaven with God. And so even as Abraham was there in the promised land, he was looking beyond it to something else. Uh, I, I like what William Lane says in his commentary on Hebrews. As I've been studying Hebrews, I found probably Lane's commentary is my favorite one. But this is what he says. Abraham's status as an immigrant and alien in the land had the positive effect of indicating that Cana was not, in the final sense, the promised inheritance. It served to direct his attention beyond Cana to the established city of God as the ultimate goal of his pilgrimage. And I agree with that. I think that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So how did Abraham live? He lived by faith. He had a sense that God was calling him not just to be a stranger in Cana, but to be a stranger in this world. Now notice what the author of Hebrews does. Now jump down to verse 13. This is where it starts, starts applying to us. The author of Hebrews then takes Abraham's experience in verse 13. We're going to jump 11 and 12. We'll come back to that next week. I just couldn't squeeze it all in. So, verse 13. He now applies Abraham as a paradigm for God's, the experience of God's people. He says all these people, not just Abraham, but all these people that we're talking about, all these Old Testament saints, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. It is the common experience of the Old Testament saints that they weren't at home. That they were, even when they were doing what God was telling them to do, living where God was telling them to live, they still understood in some longing way that their home was beyond this world. They never fully saw the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, it says in verse 39, if you jump down to the end of the chapter, these, in other words, all these people we're talking about, all these Old Testament heroes, were all commended for their faith, yet, here we go, none of them received what had been promised. Why? Verse 40, God had planned something better for us. For us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. So now it's not just Abraham as a pilgrim in this world. It's not just the Old Testament saints were pilgrims in this world. But we are also pilgrims in this world. We also don't fit in. This also isn't our home. We're strangers in this land. And so Abraham's experience, even though it was many millennia ago, is still our experience as Christians. That when you become a follower of Christ, there's a sense of dislocation from this world. Yeah, I'm in the world, but I don't totally fit in here. The Apostle Peter picks up on this in his letter. In fact, I'd like to read it with you. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's just a few pages later. It's on page 1200 in the Pew Bible. Peter picks up on this theme that Christians are strangers in the world. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Look how the letter starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to God's elect, to the Christians, strangers in the world, foreigners in the world. We don't fit in. This isn't our home. We're expatriates here living abroad. Get this next phrase. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a really interesting phrase. Uh, you see that word scattered? In Greek, it's, it's a word that's uh, diaspora. We're the, we're the dispersed people. And why that's important is that, that the word diaspora was a very technical term at this time to refer to the Jews in the Roman Empire who were living outside of the land of Palestine. So there were the Jews who were in the Promised Land in the Roman Empire, and then there were the Jews who had been exiled, and they were the Diaspora Jews. So what's interesting here is that Peter is writing to Gentile Christians and calling them the Diaspora. In other words, the true Israel is now the church, and they are scattered outside of their home Promised Land, which is not Palestine anymore, which is heaven. That the, the Diaspora is earth, And the homeland for which we yearn is our heavenly country. So all of those categories of the Old Testament are sort of taken up to a higher level and applied to the new people of God in Christ. It's really interesting. But we are strangers in the world. We don't belong here. And so it's really funny. Like I said, being a Christian is like living abroad in another culture. You know, at one level we fit in, right? If you're a Christian in America, you... Live like an American in many ways. If you become a Christian in Kenya, you, you live like a Kenyan. You know, it's like the Kenyan Christians. And th- there's not a, a Christian culture that goes everywhere. You know, it's not like Hinduism, where Hindus create a caste system based upon their religion that structures and orders society. And it's not like Islam, which has Sharia law that says, okay, we're going to take over society and we're going to order the structures of a society a certain way. It's not how it functions. Christianity is kind of invisible. It sort of fits into the different cultures. So African Christians still seem African and Asian Christians still seem Asian and American Christians still seem American in some ways. And yet, um, and yet we're different. <laughs> and yet that Asian Christian and that African Christian, that American Christian, and that Latin American Christian all have something similar that ties them together that's different from all their cultures. There's this weird stranger kind of thing that takes place at the same time. Um, I, I was digging around as I was preparing for this, and I found this really cool uh, reference from, from the 2nd century A.D., so about a century after the writings of the New Testament. In fact, I put it in your bulletin if you want to take it out. It's called the Letter to Diognetus. It's, it's a, a, an apology... And by apology, I don't mean like, oops, I'm sorry, but, you know, like a classic apology, like a defense of the faith, an apologia. So this, whoever this is writing this letter to Diognetus, who we're not quite sure who that was, he's defending Christianity. He's trying to explain Christianity to a guy who doesn't get it. And listen, listen how he talks about this thing. He says, uh, this is an excerpt from the letter, For Christians, he says, cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race, by country or language or customs. There's not a distinct Christian culture. You know, you don't, we don't become Christians as sort of like, let's go buy an island and build Christian country, you know, and we'll go make Christian town. It, we tried to do that, actually. It was called Boston, a city on the hill with the Puritans. Didn't work. Why? Because we're in the world. We, we can't make Christian town. Right? We're in the world. We're dispersed among it. So we can't be identified by our our language, or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. There's no Christian town. 
They do not use a peculiar form of speech. There's no Christian language. It's not like Vulcan or something where we make up our own language. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they need to put forward a merely human teaching as some people do. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. So even though we live among them, we show that we belong to a different commonwealth, a different country. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, and yet endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else. They beget children. We have families. you know, We're, we're like everyone else. And yet, they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. We're not like the culture. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the law requires. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still they are condemned. They are put to death and yet they are brought to life. And then here's this famous sentence. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, that Christians are in the world. And what an eloquent summary of this strange experience we have as Christians of being in the world, a part of it, infused throughout it, and yet being strangers. So how do, you, how do you live like that? It's an interesting tension to keep, isn't it? Peter helps us out a little bit more. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Talking about living as strangers and aliens in the world. What does that mean? How does that work itself out? Well, for one thing, Peter says it means that we don't participate in the sinful practices of our cultures. Wherever culture you're in, whether it's in Papua New Guinea or Iceland or Bolivia, sin is in the culture. And so whatever culture we're in as Christians means that we identify where worldliness and sin is and we don't participate in that, in that as is expressed in each culture. So it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, 1 Peter, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, there it is again, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You need to fight against all those old desires, your sinful desires. All the bad things you picked up growing up in a sinful culture are still fighting against you. And so as people of a new culture, of a new heavenly citizenship, we have to resist sin in the way it attacks us. We get the same message in 1 Peter chapter 4. Just to give you another for instance. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. Same message. As a result, do not live the rest of... Uh, he does not live, that is a Christian, does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So before coming to Christ, we just... Live for whatever our gut and our heart told us. But now we're living for the will of God instead. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do. 
living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. That's what it can mean to live as a foreigner. When you don't participate in the world's toxic filth like you used to, people are like, hey, what gives? You're too holy for us now? Oh, you know, and all that stuff. I'm part of a different country. I'm a Christian now. Something has changed inside of me that's dramatically reformatted my life. So we're in the world, but we're strangers. We're living according to God's standards. But it's not only about what you say no to. I think being a stranger in the world means also what you say yes to. It's not just about what we're avoiding. It's also what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to our heavenly home. The reason why we're saying no isn't because we're prudish or self-righteous. It's because there's something so much better that we are now longing for. So go back to Hebrews 11. We're longing for this promised place. Verse 13 again of Hebrews 11. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were looking ahead to something that wasn't in this world. People who say such things, verse 14, show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were, I love this word, longing. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So living as a stranger in the world not only means saying no to sin, but it means our whole lives are just oriented to something beyond this world. A heavenly calling and a heavenly yearning. You know? So we're called to let go of this world. And we do as Christians. This is not where our home is. And I think that's one of the temptations we fight, as, even as Christians, is holding on to the things of this world as if anything in this world was ultimately our purpose, meaning our home. And as Christians, we, we have to be so hopeful in that world to come that by faith, we, even if we hold the things in this world, we hold them open-handedly because this isn't our home. You know, When you look in your own life, in your own heart, do you find things in your life, people, relationships, money, jobs, hobbies, whatever it is, that, that we hold on to so tightly in, in, with a kind of an idolatrous death grip. And we say, I can't let go of this. Is there anything in your life that if God were to take it away from you tomorrow morning, you would be tempted to just walk away from God because you'd be so angry? Is there anything you feel like, God can do whatever, but He can't touch this? You've got to be careful when you say that. Because <laughs> that's often where God goes, okay, I'll touch that. We'll see who God is. Is it you or is it me? You know, is there anything where we just defy God and say, no, no, this is what my life is about? And so as Christians, we say, no, my hope is in that world. And so I surrender my entire life to God to do with as He pleases. You know, even my children, even my health, even my career. And so we have an open-handedness. But the great thing is, when you get to that place of living and putting our hope in the world to come, it's so liberating. It's so liberating. Because we're not shackled to this world anymore. You know, not that we, we disconnect from it like a Buddhist monk who you know, goes into a complete state of, of disassociation from the world. We're still in the world. So it's not like we say goodbye to the world, like we're somehow better than it. But somehow we live in it 
open-handedly with our hope in Christ and we're free. We're free to, to take our money and use it for God's purposes. Because ultimately, you know, my hope isn't my 401k. You know, the world's in a recession. Everyone's freaking out. Yeah, it's tough, but I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, we, we act like a recession is the end of the world. The return of Christ is the end of the world. We've got to get it straight. You know, it's just money. It's just money. Yeah, it's tough and all, but come on. Let's just be open-hearted with our lives. What about our time and our homes? You know, when, when you realize your longing is in heaven, you can just kind of open your home and open your life. And it's not about holding on to what you have to hold on to. We're open-handed with our, our, our friendships. We're open-handed with even where we live. Maybe God wants to call us someplace else. What if God wants to call you to be a missionary or to go serve Him in some other place? Are we willing to go? Or, or are we like, no, we've got to stay here? You know, I was joking about living in New England like another culture. One of the things about New England that I've sort of discovered by living here is that New Englanders have a strong sense of place. Which is actually, I think, in some ways really refreshing, having lived other parts of the country, where everyone's so transient. It's like everyone comes and goes everywhere. No one belongs anywhere. Like, the great thing about New England is everyone who's from New England, they belong in New England. And they go off to college, but then they come back as quick as they can. Because, like, why would you want to live outside of New England? You know, there's this idea. You, you talk to someone from New England, you're like, where do you live? I live in Weymouth. Oh, is that where you're from? Oh, no. I'm from Quincy. You know, it's like... the same place. No, no, no. Quincy, Weymouth? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, okay. And so in some ways, that's really cool because it, it, I think it has something protected that we don't have anymore, which is a sense of place. But in other ways, as Christians, we have to say, I don't, I'm not a New Englander. I'm a heavenlier. Whatever, I'm not I'm making up an adjective. I belong with Christ. You know? I, you know, it, it's a dangerous thing to say, I, I can never leave New England. Like, what if God calls you, Abraham? What if He's got something for you to do? Are you really going to miss out on the blessings of God because you're willing to let go of your place, to let go of your money, to let go of your career, to let go of whatever it is? Or are we going to hold on to it with that idolatrous death grip that's really choking ourselves from experiencing the full life that God has for you? You know, when you sign on with Jesus, you know, it's follow me. <laughs> and that's pretty open-ended. Which is, in some ways, like I said, scary. In other ways, so liberating. Follow me. I just get up every day. It's simple. Follow me. Got it. I can do that. I'm going to follow Christ wherever it is that He calls me to go. And where is He leading us? We do know that. We know the end of the story. It's the heavenly city. The heavenly city. I need to wrap this sermon up, but let's just... We've got to look at the city for a minute. That's the whole thing. That's where we're going. Look at, okay, look at verse 10 and look at verse 13. That's, or 16. That's where the city's mentioned. Notice that in both references to the heavenly city... There's one particular thing the writer of Hebrews wants to drill into our minds. Okay? So I'll just read it and see if you can figure out what it is that he wants us to know about the city. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And then verse 16, Instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Here we go. For he has prepared a city for them. What is it that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about the city? God builds it. Verse 10, verse 16, God builds the city. We don't build the city. The world is too screwed up for us to build the city. Every time we try to build the city, we think we're building the heavenly city and just Babel comes out. That's what happens when we build the city. Babel. God has to build this city. The world is so riddled and infected with sin that only the city from heaven coming down can ultimately solve our condition here. Which doesn't mean that we give up on trying to make the world a better place because we're still in the world. We still have to follow Christ. And yet we do it. There's that tension with an awareness that it's only God who's going to come and, and restore this world. You know, and so down through human history, there have been utopian visions from Plato's Republic way back, you know, in the, in the, the 5th century B.C., you know, up to Marx and socialism and the idea of a socialist society. Or even the U.N., you know, there's these ideas of, of sort of bringing the world together. You know, you look at the U.N., it's like, that's a really great idea. Get all the nations together to talk. You know, brilliant! <laughs> we should have thought of that. And yet... The world is so um, hobbled by our sin that even our best ideas and intentions from their very inception are infected. So that you, you, know, you build the UN and then you get like the food for oil scandal, you know, corruption in the billions of dollars. Or, or you have the Human Rights Council in the UN where a lot of the member states are like some of the worst human rights abusers in the world. <laughs> like, how does that happen? Well, it just happens anytime we try to build the city. Not that we shouldn't try to build the city or shouldn't try to make the world a better place, but we recognize ultimately as Christians that it's got to come down from heaven. God has to build the city. Just as Jesus Christ came down from heaven for us. We don't get to heaven by cobbling together our own ladder going up. Heaven is not achieved from the ground up. It's received by faith from heaven down. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He died on a cross. Why? Because we couldn't get there any other way. Any attempts at religiosity or self-righteousness or do-gooderism on our part to build the city from the ground up will fail because we infect it with our own sin from the very laying of the foundations. So we need a salvation that comes from heaven down. And that's the message of the Gospel that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God has had mercy upon this broken world by sending His own Son, Jesus, from heaven to earth to rescue sinners like us. So salvation is not, hey, get your act together, and once your act is together, then God will accept you. Salvation is not like the science project where you know we build our religion and our good deeds, and then God's like the judge, and He goes, well, that's a good one. That one gets a ribbon. You know, no, no, it's not very good. That one's pretty good. That's not how it works. None of the projects pass God's muster. God has come down in Christ to save sinners. And our response is simple faith in Christ. And God builds the city. God sent Jesus to save us on the cross. God is sending Jesus again to finish the city. And I know we should quit, but... Let's take a sneak peek at the city before I quit. <laughs> Revelation 21. 
This is like when the architect shows you the architectural renderings. You're not there, but you see it. And you're like, oh, I would love that. Here's the, here's the renderings. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. How? Coming down, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank You that You came, Jesus, to secure citizens for the coming city. Thank You, Jesus, for being crucified so that we might be alive in forgiveness and righteousness. Thank You, Jesus, for saving us for the coming city. Thank You for including us and calling us. We don't know why You've called us. We don't know why You died for us. But by faith, we simply revel in it in awestruck wonder and we take the step of faith. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would sovereignly continue to call people to Yourself. I pray, Lord, that even today someone might begin a new journey, that even today they would hear Your voice and would by simple faith recognize that it's not about getting religious or making oneself right, but it's about simply accepting what You have done through Christ. Lord, we love You. Thank You for that coming city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And would you turn to hymn number...